Welcome to the Soulful Cottage, where we dive into an eclectic mix of topics that include, but are not limited to, metaphysical spirituality, holistic wellness, and the paranormal. The Soulful Cottage encourages open dialogue, critical thinking, and a celebration of diverse perspectives. So come on in, grab your favorite beverage, and get cozy by the fire. The Soulful Cottage awaits you. Before we embark on our journey in this podcast, we want to emphasize the importance of your well-being. While the Soulful Cottage is dedicated to discussing metaphysical spirituality, holistic wellness, and the paranormal, we must underscore that the information provided here is for informational and entertainment purposes only. We are not licensed medical or mental health professionals, and the content shared in this podcast should not be considered a substitute for professional medical, psychological, psychiatric advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are experiencing physical or mental health issues, we strongly encourage you to consult a qualified healthcare professional. This episode may contain depictions of violence among other sensitive topics that some may feel triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Soulful Cottage, our third paranormal episode. I'm Christine. And I'm Adela. Hi, Adela. How are you doing today? I'm fabulous, Chrissy. How are you? I am well. Thank you. Awesome. I love these paranormal episodes. Oh, I dig them too. They're so fun. They are, but they can be pretty extreme too. Yeah, they can. That's for sure. Mine's mine's a little gruesome this time around. Yeah. So what do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to talk about something that I have actually visited myself, and it's the Queen Mary. Oh, nice. Um, A little bit about the Queen Mary is it it was an ocean liner that was converted into a hotel, and now it's permanently docked in Long Beach, California. Okay. And it is the epitome of opulence um but it is also one of the most haunted hotels in america oh okay oh yes um i had the privilege of being able to have lunch on the queen mary when i was 16 and went out and visited relatives in california oh nice and they give you a little tour to begin with. Okay. And uh, I found the engine room to be particularly disturbing at the time. Oh, okay. So I wanted to go through a little bit of the history of the Queen Mary and some of the areas that are pronounced as hot spots. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. So the history of the Queen Mary, um, it began its life as a cruise ship. Um, the, excuse me if I slaughter this word. It's Cunard White Star Line. Uh, the vessel was christened on September 26th of 1934 by Queen Mary herself. Uh-huh. And it went on to log more than three decades carrying both luxury and military passengers. Oh. 
Um, during World War II, World War Two, excuse me, the ship was pressed into service to transport soldiers between the fronts. And a really interesting fact: um, my grandfather was very badly injured, and he came back on the Queen Mary. That is wow! Connections. I know, right? Um, The liner was retired in 1967 and given over to the city of Long Beach, California. Uh, Five years later, it reopened as a floating hotel. Um, It allows guests to sleep among the original wood paneling and portholes. And imagine what it would have been like to cross the Atlantic. That was super cool. Isn't that just the neatest thing? Mm And it's all in style. Um, Living guests, though, aren't the only ones who have been known to spend time on this historic ship. Oh, I bet. Yeah. At least 49 deaths are said to have been taken place on the Queen Mary since its maiden voyage. Oh, Oh, wow. That's a lot. And yeah, isn't that something? Um, and I don't even think that that counts all the military that might have passed away on that on ship way, on the way back. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, I know. Uh, legend holds that several areas on board have been home to apparitions. These days, the hotel offers uh, ghost tours by day and night to take full advantage of the spooky stories. Nice. Um, not only does the Queen Mary offer a transatlantic history, but it's also known, like I said, as to be very haunted. Uh, that was a direct quote from Chris Wilmoth, the director of marketing on the Queen Mary. And he told that to Travel and Leisure magazine in an email, um, the unique history of the ship allows them to offer a one-of-a-kind and authentic experience that delve into the paranormal. From evening tours to ghost investigations to overnight stays in the most haunted stateroom. Oh, no. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. I couldn't do it. Nope. Well, let's talk about that stateroom B340, shall we? Yeah, let's. <laughs> this stateroom was a problem long before the Queen Mary opened as a hotel. In 1948, a British third-class passenger, Walter J. Adamson, passed away in the room under circumstances that have been lost to time. Uh, Later in 1966, a woman stayed in the room and she reported that she woke up when the bed covers were pulled off her. Nope, nope. And she saw a man standing at the foot of her bed. Oh, hell no. Mm -mm. She screamed and rang for the steward, but the man apparently vanished into the mirror. Oh, lovely. Yeah. In the years since, guests have reported hearing someone knocking on the door in the middle of the night, seeing the bathroom lights mysteriously turn on and off. Nope. Um, Even the hotel maids have made reports. 
um, bathroom water running when no one stayed in the room for days. And on one occasion, again, the bed covers being pulled off right after the bed was made. No. Oh, that would just freak me out. Mm -mm. Uh, the, The room actually was closed to many guests for many years, but it's reopened. Lovely. And anybody can stay in there for some creepy fun. Are you, are you going to take that trip? No, I don't poke the beasts. <laughs> um, another room is the Mauritania room. In 1989, two women were sent to clean this lounge for a VIP reception. When they entered the room, they found a guest sitting silently on a chair in the middle of the dance floor. Hmm. When a third when a third woman came in to help with the cleaning and getting set up, she remarked that the guest was staring and she asked him to move. As the employees started to call security, the guest faded into thin air in front of them. Oh my gosh. All three women saw this happen. Oh, Another room is the Mayfair room. This room was once the ship's beauty salon, but now it's used as office space for hotel employees. Now, if you know that a ship is haunted, do you want to work there? No, I don't. Right, what makes you think that you're immune? But anyhow, in 2001, a member of the accounting staff came in early to work and simply felt like something was off. She went about her office duties before sitting down at her desk. She was feeling unusually cold. Later, she felt someone brush up against her back of the chair. Wasn't anybody there. Of course not. Just minutes after that, the woman saw a transparent figure in white walk across the room and pass through the door uh, needless to say, the employees grabbed her, her keys and fled until <laughs> other co-workers returned. <laughs> oh, I would have too. I don't even know if I would even return. Right? Um, this one is interesting. The first class swimming pool. Ah. Uh, this It's now abandoned. Uh, onboard pool was once the epitome of luxury with an illuminated fountain and mother of pearl ceiling and elaborate mosaic tiles. Oh, wow. You just see how opulent that was in your mind. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, the pool is no longer in use because of a code in California, but it's being worked on. And it's definitely one of the hotbeds. People have reported seeing a number of apparitions here, including a young woman in a tennis skirt walking downstairs and disappearing behind a pillar, a woman in an old wedding dress next to the pool with a little boy in a suit, and a steam, a cloud of steam reappearing out of nowhere, along with this little girl in a blue and white dress who just disappears in an instant. There's something about children and women <gasps> and women in wedding dresses. I swear, there are so many. Oh, my gosh. 
I know. Now, remember, I said that a place that kind of freaked me out was around the boiler room area. Yeah. Well, several people have reported seeing a little girl in boiler room four with, uh, she's sucking her thumb and a doll in her hand. Oh, it's so sad. I know. And then there's this one hatch called hatch door number 13. Now, that gives 13 the wrong impression because 13 is a good number, but (laughs) I digress. Um, This hatch door is known as Shaft Alley, and it was the site of a gruesome accident that saw a crewman crushed to death. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. Oh. Uh, One night in 1966, the watertight doors in the engine and boiler room were ordered to be closed. About five minutes later, an 18-year-old crew member from York, Yorkshire was found crushed in the door oh my God. of batch number 13. What is with the year 1966? I, right? Um, he was trapped with his arms pinned to his side. Oh. Although the, the man was freed and carried to the hospital ward, it was too late. He showed signs of crushing injuries on his arm, chest, and pelvis, and was bleeding from his nose. Oh, jeez. He was injected with morphine to help with the pain and died shortly after. His ghost is regularly seen around the area now, with people reporting the sound of someone running behind them and whistling. Others have possibly made contact with this doomed crewman, noticing spots of grease that look like fingerprints on their faces. Some of them have seen a figure of a bearded man in blue overhauls that look just like the man who died out of the corner of their eye. And several have said they saw an engineer wandering the hallways, asking if guests have seen his wrench. But when they look back to find him, he's disappeared. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, so one of the most haunted hotels in America. Wow. I don't, I, no, I could not stay there. No way. Would you? I don't know. I might. You would. (laughs) Well, I might too because of my grandpa being on there. Yeah, do you want to share that story? Well, during World War II, he was very injured, very badly injured. Um, he was in enemy lines, and he was um, hiding under a barn. And uh, when they found him, he was extremely thin, and they went to take his helmet off, and his scalp and hair came with it oh my god um and uh now my grandfather has been gone for quite a few years but i always am intrigued with stories always was as a kid and one of the things that used to happen is my grandmother used to have to pull pieces of metal shards out of his back and My grandma said after one, she said, nope, can't do it anymore because the metal shards, you know. um, Work their way up. Yeah, work their way up. 
And uh, so my mom tells that she had to take the last one out. And it was a piece probably two, three inches long. Oh, my gosh. Yep. How many uh, How many um, pieces did he have? I really can't tell you, but I know that it got to the point where my grandmother said, I can't do this anymore. Right. And it had he been, used to have... Huh? That had been so painful for him. Um. I, I can only, I can't even imagine. Um, and he'd have terrible, terrible nightmares where he'd thrash in the night. And uh, so it must have been quite an ordeal. Oh, wow. That poor man. How long did that go on for where the, they had to keep, your grandmother had to keep pulling the shards out? Oh, that's, it happened years and years. Um, I remember my mom pulling one out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, because medicine just wasn't what it was. And when my grandfather went into the military, he was a very stocky guy. He was a boxer. <laughs> okay. And not, not, not real tall, but real stocky. He had golden uh, glove in the military. Um, and nobody would really mess with him. <laughs> well, when he came back, um, the Queen Mary, he actually had to stay at an army hospital until he would gain weight enough to be able to my grandmother could take him home oh wow mm-hmm. oh. he was that thin man do you know how long he had to hide for under the barn i i can't tell you for sure oh man but it's just terrible stories terrible stories yeah. but very important that we hear those stories from from our older generation. Absolutely. 100% agree. Wow. Yeah. Um, but tell me about your paranormal. Okay. Well, um, I am going to, I know we post a trigger warning at the beginning of this sh- of the episode, but I cannot em- emphasize enough. I'm, again, trigger, 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 trigger warning. This is, involves, um, children young young children so um it was it can get it's really gruesome so just throwing that out so adela have you ever heard of the bath school massacre i have not it's um yeah bath is located in michigan um it's 100 miles northwest of detroit so i'm going to give you a little background um there's this gentleman I use that term loosely, named Andrew Kehoe. He was born in Tecumseh, Michigan on February 1st, 1872. He was one of 13 children, and he'd had a really troubled life. His mother passed away when she was very young, and while his father later remarried, Kehoe and his stepmother never got along. One day, when Kehoe was 14, his stepmother attempted to light an oil stove in the kitchen. The stove exploded and set her on fire. Kiho simply just stood and watched her burn. After a few minutes, he doused her with a bucket of water, which put out the fire. But gravely injured, she later died. It would later be speculated that Kiho had something to do with the malfunction of the stove. So let's just kind of paint a little picture of his personality. That's, you know, that's, that's when he was 14. 
so moving on, he attended Tecumseh High School and went on to Michigan State College. That's so funny. It was called college then, not university. <laughs> I'm not used to that. Uh, where he met his future wife, Nellie Price. He later moved out west for a few years and spent some time in St. Louis, where he suffered a severe head injury as a result of a fall in 1911. He was attending electrical school at the time of the accident. Kehoe was in coma for two months. Whether this injury contributed to Kehoe's madness, we'll never know, but it certainly seemed possible. His behavior became more and more erratic after the fall, even though he physically recovered. I kind of think, no, the signs started when he, you know, probably set his stepmother on fire, but, you know. Yeah, I could be wrong. Um, when Kehoe returned to Michigan, he married Nellie. She came from a rather wealthy family, which owned several pieces of property in Clinton Township. Eventually, Andrew and Nellie bought 185 acres from an uncle's estate. He was quick to help people, but equally quick to be critical when he didn't get his own way. He was intelligent, able to easily articulate his views, but had little patience for ideas that did not agree with his own. He was habitually neat and often changed his shirt twice a day. He liked to tinker with machinery, especially with electrical gadgets. He seemed happiest when repairing or adjusting the machinery on his farm. New ways of carrying out familiar chores intrigued him, and he was constantly looking for a way to improve the farm. Kehoe also gained a reputation for being tight with a dollar, a trait those helped him. Excuse me, a trait that helped him get elected to the school board in 1926. On the board, Kehoe constantly campaigned for lower taxes because he claimed the current taxes were causing him financial hardship. His creditor tried to work out a payment plan with him. But, were, but they were unsuccessful. Soon he stopped paying his mortgage and homeowner's insurance. To complicate matters, Nellie Keyhole was chronically ill with tuberculosis. She required frequent hospital stays, which wiped out what little savings they had left. Keyhole was sure that, that they would lose the farm and plunge even de deeper in debt. In his mind, high property taxes were the source of all his financial woes. He saw nothing good come from the taxes and believed that many of the town's expenditures were wasteful and pointless. But above all, without any valid reason, he blamed the five-year-old Bath Consolidated School for his troubles. Kehoe argued against the new school and complained constantly about the increase in taxes, stating that they were illegal and unfair. He considered at least one of his fellow student board members to be his bitter enemy. Board President Emery E. Huck, I think it's called, how would you pronounce that? H-U-Y-C-K. Huck? Huck? Okay, we'll yeah. go with that. I, I apologize if I slaughtered that. Um, Kehoe claimed that Huck was influencing the other members of the board to vote for higher taxes. Kehoe became obsessed with school board politics, and Emery Huke and the injustice of property taxes, which he believed were ruining his life. At some point in the summer of 1926, Kehoe began purchasing large quantities of pyrotol, an um, explosive that was first used during World War I. Farmers often used it for excavation, so Kehoe's purchase of the small amounts of the sur surplus explosive at different stores on different dates did not raise any suspicions. 
Neighbors reported hearing explosions on Kehoe's farm, which he explained by saying he was removing tree stumps. No one thought this was odd and no one questioned it. When he drove to Lansing in November of 1926 and bought two boxes of dynamite in a, at a sporting goods store, nobody questioned it. Throughout the spring of 1927, Kehoe began to transport the pyridol into Bath School. He did so in small increments and no one noticed anything out of the ordinary. He calculated exactly what he needed each day and brought just that amount. He had volunteered to fix the wiring in the school's basement, but instead of repairing things, he wired the explosives throughout the basement, connecting various charges of explosions beneath the floors and the basement rafters. He slithered into the subfloors and crawl spaces beneath the school, hiding large amounts of pyrotol behind pipes and beams. Over time, he managed to run thousands of feet of wire throughout the building, all under the feet of unsuspected children and teachers. That is horrific. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. The project was completed in early May. Kehoe set the charges and waited. During this time, he also wired his home in the same manner in every structure on the farm. He rigged a series of firebombs, crude devices made from containers filled with gasoline and wired with automobile spark plugs attached to the car battery. On May 17th, he drove his car over to the front of his barn and loaded the back seat with metal debris. He threw in nails, old tools, pieces of farm machinery, and anything else capable of creating shrapnel in an explosion. When the back seat was filled with bits and pieces of metal, Keyhole packed dozens of wrapped sticks of dynamite under the front seat and placed a loaded rifle on the passenger seat next to him. On the morning of May 18th, at approximately 8.45 a.m., Two miles from the school, Kehoe detonated the firebombs on the farm. The place exploded into flames, sending smoke, fire, and debris into the air. Burning streamers of flame fell from the sky, raining down on the farm and across the road. The neighbors hearing the explosion ran to Kehoe's farm to offer assistance. As they hurried down the driveway, Kehoe was already behind the wheel of his car. He, cl he calmly looked at them through the open window and said, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Kehoe roared away, leaving his confused neighbors and the farm completely engulfed in flames behind him. Before the dust from the explosion had settled, townspeople were already digging through the rubble of the school. The sound of children screaming and moaning could be heard coming from the ruins. Fully half the building, the northwest wing, was gone. The walls were destroyed and the roof lay on the ground. Bodies of the children could be seen protruding from the bricks and stone, little arms and legs only partially visible. Faces covered with blood and dust peered through the broken windows and from between the splintered beams of wood. Frantic mothers ran screaming to the scene, for almost every family in town had at least one child enrolled in that school. I cannot even imagine. Being a mom, I can't imagine. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No. That's just a horrific vision. Yes. Less than 30 minutes after the explosion, Kehoe arrived on the scene. No one knew that his car had been loaded with dynamite and metal debris. He got out of his car and saw his nemesis, board president Emery Hike. Kehoe waved and called him over to the car. As he approached, Kehoe picked up the rifle from the seat next to him, aimed it at the dynamite, and fired. Another terrible explosion rocked the town. A huge ball of flame shot upwards and shrapnel was sent flying in every direction, ripping apart trees, splitting houses, shattering windows, and cutting down everything in its path. 
Emery Hook and town postmaster Glenn Smith were in instantly killed. As policemen, firefighters, and volunteers searched through the rubble, desperately looking for any survivor, a chilling discovery was made in the ruins of the basement. A huge cache of unexploded dynamite. State police officers who emerged from the basement of the school with a bushel basket filled with dynamite informed everyone that there was even more still inside, still attached to a battery and a clock. Police officers carried, carefully dismantled what remained of Kehoe's mad plan. The following day, the police and fire officials gathered at the Kehoe farm to investigate the fire on May 19th. The body of Nellie Kehoe was found. Her body was so disfigured that she first went unnoticed by everyone who walked past her. She had been burned almost beyond recognition. The amount of unused equipment and materials on the property reportedly could have easily paid off the mortgage, but Kehoe had been so too obsessed with the quote-unquote unfair taxes for him to even realize that. Is that not just sad? It's insane. He could have... That's horrendous. He was on a mission, and he was wearing those blinders, and he was not going to stop. Oh, that's absolutely horrid. Yeah. Um, let's see. It was determined that Keyhole had murdered Emery Hook on the morning of May 18th. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, they also found that the school was destroyed as part of the plan that was carried out by Keyhole alone without the aid of conspirators and that he had willfully caused the death of 44 people, including his wife, Nellie, on August 22nd. Some three months after the bombing, fourth grader Beatrice Gibbs died following hip surgery. It was the final death attributed to the Bath School massacre. So now we get to the paranormal portion of it. That was just kind of a little bit of the back story. Oh. Um, the paranormal part is... It was Richard Fritz's eighth birthday, the day that he died, almost exactly a year later from complications after the bombing. He was buried next to his sister, Marjorie, age 10, at the Mount Hope Cemetery without a headstone. That is so sad to me. And to be a mom, okay, you put your, you have Marjorie and your other, like you have two children buried. I just can't even. Mm -hmm. Uh, 87 years later, the community rallied to ensure that the children had headstones, and every year there are new matchbox cars that appear on every grave. No one has ever seen the cars delivered, but without fail, they are delivered every year. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. That's sweet but scary. Yeah. How does nobody, I mean, I'd be like, okay, let's set up a camera. Let's go. Right. <laughs> oh. According to stories, people claim to have made, have, sorry, have many experiences at the park where the two uh, schools once stood. Voices are heard, as well as cries for help, and recordings have been obtained that allegedly contain the eerie voices of the lost still seeking help after decades have passed. Unexplained cold spots are also felt, as well as the strange touch of unseen hands as if they are reaching out from beyond the grave. Mm. Yeah. And according to firsthand accounts, the massacre site is not only place is not the only place in Bath that is haunted. A funeral home on Main Street where many of the bodies of the victims were prepared for burial were turned into apartment houses many years after the massacre. Nope. 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 Mm. I would not be living there. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. And this is why. <laughs> A tenant who moved into the place in 2000 began to experience odd happenings in the house 
uh, starting almost from the night she moved in. As she clammed into bed that night, she felt the unsettling stare of someone watching her, and things were never the same after that. She began hearing footsteps going up and down the stairs that had been removed years before and voices coming from the basement. Toilets flushed by themselves, water faucets turned on and off. Yeah, kind of like the Queen, Queen Mary story you just told. <laughs> yes. Um, she claimed to hear sobbing and crying of children. When she heard the sound of breaking glass one night, she called the police. Officers came to search the house, but when she unlocked the basement door, both men refused to go down and look around. <laughs> oh, don't blame them. When the, landlord, no. <laughs> when the landlord came to her the following day and blamed her for damage that had been done in the basement, she showed him the police report, and he was puzzled by the disturbance that as she, as she had been. A short time later, she began seeing the ghosts. The first victim she saw said that his name was George Hall and that he had been eight years old when he died at the school. According to the witness, George's ghost had no legs. The spirit she claimed... Yeah. That is horrible. The spirit she claimed was a prankster and loved the tenant's cat, along with other animals. There was also a little girl who was missing a hand and wanted the tenant to look for it. The spirit told her that she had been wearing a ring that was special to her when she died at the school and the ring was still on one of her missing fingers. I just, I can't, I cannot even, oh. During the time that she lived in the house, the tenant stated that the ghostly occupants were always nearby and seemed to need something from her. Something that she seemed to be able to give. They wanted help, she said, but she didn't know how to help them. That would, I would feel very helpless. First of all, my ass would be moving out of that house. Second of all, I, I would, I'd feel, you know, these are children, I'd feel so helpless. I mean, they're so confused, they don't know what's going on. Oh. So now we have some interesting facts about this horrific occurrence. First graders were, were on a picnic on Kehoe's property the day before the bombing on, May, on Monday, May 16th, 1927. The Bath first grade teacher asked Kehoe if her students could have a picnic on his property on Thursday, May 20th. Kehoe agreed, but urged her to do it on Tuesday because of the weather. The bombing occurred on Wednesday. It's unclear whether the picnic actually took place or not, though. Oh. Yeah. Kehoe was in the school shortly before the explosion. Early on the day of the bomb bombing, Kehoe was flagged down on the street by another school trustee who wanted Kehoe to look at the school's malfunctioning water pump. They went into the building at around 7.25 and, and were looking over the pump when Kehoe abruptly said he was in a hurry and left. Well, gee, I wonder why. Uh -huh. oh. Story time saved the second graders and final exams saved some of the fifth graders. The school explosion killed 37 school children all in elementary grades housed in the North Wing. The death toll by grade, see, I don't think this is accurate, because I think there was like 44 deaths total, but maybe at the, at the time, this is what the numbers were. The death toll by grade, 13 sixth graders, 10 third graders, and seven fatalities each um, in grades four and five. An, oh. out, yeah, an outer wall collapsed in the second grade classroom, but the children survived because they were gathered around the teacher on the opposite side of the room for story time. Oh, man. Another twist of fate. The sixth graders usually 
in a second story classroom were in the first floor fifth grade classroom that day. The room switch occurred because of the sixth grade final exams and the teacher thought the fifth grade room was preferable for testing. The bombing occurred the day before commencement. That is so sad. The school, the school was bombed during the last week of school before summer break and the day before the 1927 commencement ceremony when 15 students were uh, scheduled to graduate. Commencement was canceled and the bath class of 1927 didn't hold a reunion for 50 years until 1977 when the district handed out diplomas to the class of 1927 as well as the class of 1975 or 1977. Nine of the 15 alumni participated in the ceremony. I think that's so cool. Uh-huh. Kehoe didn't leave a note, but he left a sign. Kehoe not only destroyed the school, but he met methodically destroyed his house and farm, which was his wife's childhood home. Oh. I thought you loved her. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking, or obviously, I don't even know. At this point, I don't even think he understood what was going on. He was wearing those blinders, and he just had to do what he had to do, because, you know, taxes. <laughs> oh, their third-story house was considered one of the nicest in town. The Kehoes bought the property in 1919 for $12,000. Oh, can you imagine? That'd be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. Of course, I don't know what that uh, equals to today, but after her uncle died, or sorry, after her uncle died, then they were paying off a $6,000 mortgage to his estate. Andrew Kehoe had stopped paying on the mortgage, which was creating tension with the relatives who he owed the money to. Contrary to some historical accounts, however, Kehoe was not in the midst of foreclosure. The relatives had backed off on the issue because of Nellie Kehoe's poor health. In addition to blowing up the buildings on his property, Kehoe girdled the shade trees, cut them through the bark to kill them. He also cut through his grapevines and then put the vines back in place so it looked untouched. That is a lot. He put a lot of effort into this whole wow. Invest- he just wanted to kill everything. Yeah. Investigators found Kehoe's two horses burnt to death in the barn, their feet bound with wires so they couldn't escape. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. I can't with this guy. No. At the edge of the farm, authorities found a sign attached to the fence, quote, criminals are made, not born, unquote. So, there's some ghoulish details from the bombing. Um, an author, last name Bernstein, uh, offers some ghoulish details among these details. Kehoe's body was blown apart by his truck, and his intestines, dripping blood, were left hanging from the steering column of the mangled truck. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Nope. Gross. Oh. Uh. Nellie's, we kind of already went over this. Nellie Kehoe's charred body was found on a cart on the farm property and it was so badly burnt that authorities passed by it for more than a day before they realized it contained a corpse. Oh. That is just so, oh my God. After the truck bomb, a woman in the crowd picked up what she thought was a stick and it was a human backbone. Oh. Yeah, these are, oh my God. A deputy sheriff saw the legs of a girl sticking out from the rubble and tugged on the foot. It snapped off in his hand. A young mother, a block away, mind you, a block away, 
from the scene was holding a baby when the truck bomb went off and a two inch square burr went into her eye and another piece of shrapnel in her skull. She survived but was left brain damage. One of the two teachers killed, killed was found buried in the rubble holding two dead children. Oh my heart, I can't even. <sighs> two children taken to the temporary morgue and covered with a sheet were later found to be alive. So that was positive. Uh, governor Fred Green was a Republican governor only a few months into office when the Bath Massacre occurred. He was among the Lansing area authorities who rushed to the scene of, of the disaster that day. And he helped dig through the rubble for survivors. The governor, who had made a fortune in the furniture industry, later offered to personally pay for burials of any families who couldn't afford a funeral for their children. And um, the bath, this is interesting, the bath disaster was pushed off the front page by the uh, Lindbergh flight. The Bath School Massacre made national headlines and was the lead story in New York Times on May 19, 1927, but it was quickly overshadowed by one of the biggest news events of the early 20th century, Charles Lindbergh's historic flight from New York to Paris. Lindbergh left Long Island on May 20th and arrived in Paris 33 hours later on May 22nd. This next one is very interesting. You'll like this one, Nadella. The KKK blamed Catholicism for the massacre. Seriously. Seriously. The Ku Klux Klan has significant membership in Michigan during the 1920s. About 15,000 marched down Michigan Avenue in Lansing during Labor Day in 1924. That's insane to me. And the Clinton oh. County Sheriff was uh, reportedly a Klan member, according to Bernstein. In Michigan, the KKK's was aimed uh, mainly at immigrants and Catholics. After the bath bombing, they printed up five million leaflets claiming Kehoe's Catholic upbringing caused the massacre. Ironically, the Catholic Church had its own issues with Andrew Kehoe. He and Nellie Kehoe briefly attended a Catholic church in Tecumseh during the early days of their marriage. But when the church built a new, built a new sanctuary, and told Andrew Keyhole that his share of the cost was $400. The couple left the congregation, according to Bernstein. Mm. After the bombing, the school, a new school was built with funds donated by State Senator James Cousins, who made his millions by being an early investor in the Ford Motor Company. Cousins was worth $34 million in 1927. Holy moly. And spent, wow. Yeah, and spent $75,000 on a replacement building for the school. James Cousin's school opened in 1928. The building was torn down in 1975. So uh, pennies collected from Michigan school children funded a memorial sculpture by Carlton Angel, a noted artist at the University of Michigan. The sculptor, sculpture sorry, is titled, quote, Girl with a Cat, unquote. And it is meant to speak to resilience of the human spirit. It's located today in the Bath School Museum, which is in the Bath Middle School. The former Keyhole property continues to be used as farmland. The site is located on Clark Road across the street from a Welcome to Bath sign. Oh, that's kind of eerie. Would you want to visit it? No. <laughs> there, <laughs> there's rumor in some circles that the farmhouse was never rebuilt because of fears there is still dynamite on the property. 
but Bath Township Supervisor Jack Phillips, the township's former police chief, said he's never heard that during his 30 years as a township officer. But I can see that. Oh, absolutely. So that is my, um, yeah, my paranormal and a little too crimey. Oh my gosh, that was very intense. Yeah, it's uh, just being a mom. Just even to be, yeah. not even being a mom, being a human being, you know, like, just re- I can't even imagine what these people went through. But the, the evil. Yeah. I just can't. Yeah, it's just horrific. Oh, so um, our next episode, episode number nine, is going to be Aura's. I'm kind of excited about that. Learn a little bit more about that. I'm very excited about that. Awesome. So until, yeah, until then, stay safe and blessings. Blessed be friends. Thank you for spending time with me at the Soulful Cottage. I would love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Feel free to reach out to the Soulful Cottage at thesoulfulcottage at gmail.com. Join and share the Soul Shift Wellness Facebook group and visit www.soulshiftsanctuary.com. If you've enjoyed the content of this podcast, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform as well as liking, following, and sharing the content and subscribing to the podcast. Your feedback encourages the Soulful Cottage and helps others find the show. Until next time, I wish you love and light. Bye for now.